Hey humans, Ty here. Uppercut is now fueled by Grinding Coffee Company. Grinding is a Black and LGBTQ owned business that freshly roasts gluten-free vegan coffee right before they ship it. Almost all of us have gotten the chance to try at least one of Grinding's roasts, and we all adore what we've had. To try it yourself and support two small, queer-owned businesses, enter the code UPPERCUT at checkout for 10% off any non-subscription purchases. around the official uppercut podcast here we'll be focusing on video games fandom pop culture and how they all interact through the internet i'm your host ty and it's good to be here it's september that's that's wild um it's just me today because jess is still dealing with her wisdom tooth biz which is unfortunate so please send good vibes to her mouth that it gets better soon um, but I'm still joined by very cool guests uh, this time. So today, our first guest is a narrative designer with titles such as Pathologic 2, Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, and Signs of the Sojourner under their belt. But by far, their biggest credit is being a certified Goku enthusiast. It is Kevin Snow. Hi, Kevin. Thank you. And I'm actually wearing a Dragon Ball shirt right now. Even. I'm glad that you just like knew in your heart. You were just ready to be on brand. Our other guest for this episode is an occasional poet, a staff writer for Kotaku, and a damn-ass gay-ass rock. It is Renata Price. What's up? Howdy. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing just golden. Currently apartment hunting. Always fun. We have different definitions of fun. (laughs) Yeah, it sucks. Apartment hunting sucks ass. Um... All right, so I guess we can kind of just, like, hop into it, honestly. Um, We're going to talk about Boyfriend Engine and the kerfuffle around that, but also kind of, like, you know, the broader implications of that conversation and, you know, just just having more of a conversation around it, I guess. Um, And we wanted to bring Ren and Kevin on just because... Uh, Ren wrote a really good article about 12 minutes, and then um, Kevin was just, you know, talking about it a lot on Twitter, and they are also, you know, a developer. Um, so we just wanted to get, get all those perspectives. But does anybody have any, like, opening, like, I don't know, things they want to start with, I guess, or, like, parts of the conversation that they're, like, really dying to get to? Well, tweeting was a mistake. I, I regret that I did that. But. It's usually a mistake. <laughs> yeah, no, I would I would not recommend being on Twitter.com. I mean, that's what, they, listen, listen, sometimes your hottest takes are what private's for. I'm always saying this, so. I'm also always saying that. I'm, get an alt. That's the advertisement for this podcast, actually, hey, is get an alt. Hey, folks, get an alt. Don't sad post at me on Twitter. You can do that on your alt. Do not do that in my mentions. That's, no. my, that's my advice. Um, but I guess, so, Kevin, I guess going off of the not tweeting thing, like, what, what about that conversation made you feel, like, inclined to tweet at the time? Uh... 
Well, honestly, the answer to that is probably something deeply wrong with my brain. Uh, but <laughs> certainly whatever was externally motivating me to kind of chime in on that situation was just kind of the something that really jumped out at me was like the way people were kind of talking about um well for one i get i guess i'm trying to figure out where to start but you know there were kind of like two critiques kind of rolled into one um back when the situation kind of kicked off and one was that you know the content warning for boyfriend dungeon wasn't adequate um which was a critique i generally agreed with and i'm glad they updated the content warning um but there was another kind of through line of thought that was kind of picking up steam back when i kind of originally made the tweet which was that um there should have been like an opt-out for the content or that the content should have been optional or, and it was kind of framed in a particular way where it was saying that you know it was a moral imperative for Kitbox to kind of provide an opt-out to that content so that people could kind of play the game without having to experience that particular story arc. Um, and that was kind of what I objected to originally was that, you know, yes, like, you know, I, I do generally support content warnings, but also providing like an opt-out to story content that a developer considers critical to, you know, the story that they're telling is I think, like, you know, you can request it if you want to, but, like, saying that they have a moral imperative to provide that as a storyteller, I don't think is a reasonable demand. Yeah. yeah. For, for, oh, go ahead, Ren. Oh, I was just going to, to agree with that statement and also, like, wanted to toss in... I want to toss in kind of the context because I think that we jumped in to the aftermath of and, like, the... <sighs> discourse without talking about what it was and i just for context yeah, please do <laughs> i also wrote yeah. a, just wrote a piece about the offending content um and about like eric the character who people have a problem with his centrality to the game's like primary themes of coping with rejection and learning to navigate um social situations um as someone who struggles with anxiety um and so basically what happens is boyfriend dungeon uh, announces on kickstarter in 2017 uh, it does very well on Kickstarter, um, surprisingly so, even for the devs. And from that point forward, uh, they basically say, hey, we're going to launch in 2018. That does not happen uh, because of a lot of reasons. Development's hard. Uh, and so Kitbox goes on to develop for another few years. Uh, and then the game comes out this year in 2021. Uh, and when it comes out, the game is met with a not sizable but definitely significant controversy around the depiction of stalking um, and manipulation from a character named eric um, eric is a guy who sucks um, the game agrees that eric is a guy who sucks uh, and it doesn't want him in it um, and it navigates those themes i would say with relative nuance and grace um, but uh, in response to this some people who had a particular idea of what the game was uh, had some feelings around the depiction of this particular character and this is how we get to the discourse um that kevin just described a minute ago yeah i think a big part of it too that i at least that i saw was like there's a text messaging system in boyfriend dungeon and a lot of people were also like not happy that they couldn't block 
Eric's texts as part of the like not having to engage with stuff, which that one I was kind of like, yeah, like in, in, you can block a phone number, but also like you can't. You, it's a game. Like it's a game mechanic. You can't. And I wrote a piece about this. No, you can't always block a phone number. And that's why I think Eric's depiction is so well handled or yeah. handled with at least nuance is because Eric is a member of the community that you are coming into. Verona Beach, um, your character is, you know, new there for the summer, arrives and is set up with this dude. It's not like you, you know, he begins being a stalker from the instant you see him. It is you are set up with this person by your cousin. And this is often how difficult power dynamics and relationships work is that there's a social element at play. So Eric's has a shop in the town. I never went to that shop because I didn't want to interact with him. He is a member mm-hmm. of that community. And so when it puts you at an interesting position that I think the game handles well, I think it's, it's, it's right that you cannot block him because I've seen friends unable to block dudes before. I've been a, unable to block people before because it feels like they are a part of my community. Um, and that is one thing I do want to give props to Kit Fox for like actually navigating with, I would say, some nuance. For sure. I guess I'm trying to think of, like, where to go from here. I mean, for me, it's just, like, it was just a hard conversation in general because conversations on Twitter are always kind of difficult. And, like, I had one person talking to me who was basically, like, kind of throwing out, like, oh, well, I have a friend who's putting content warnings on every root of their game. And so that means that everybody should be doing that. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what you want me to say here. Like, I just don't agree with the concept of like having to create opt outs for people. Like, again, like what Kevin said, like, absolutely, like clear content warnings that like do fully cover what's happening although i also kind of want to talk about the fact that like this got a lot of blowback considering a lot of games do not do this um but like yeah i don't know i just i can't be behind like forcing creators to like let you opt out of like a the key part of a narrative just because like it's hard like I think some people really do have to swallow that tough pill of like not everything is going to be for you even if you were excited about it yeah there's always this comparative aspect whenever like a situation like this comes up where it's like well you know such and such game made this decision to allow you to like opt out of this entire story arc and even you know boyfriend dungeon has like an opt out for the text that you can receive for your mom which is one thing that people kind of argued in the initial kind of wave of discourse where they're like, well, you can opt out of receiving texts from your mom. Like, can I, you know, opt out of the Eric story content? Um, like from a design perspective, there are like aspects of the story that you're telling. Um, and Ren broke this down very well um, when she said that, you know, like it's very much about the message of dating that boyfriend dungeon is trying to tell that you know eric is not a good person and that he crosses boundaries in a way that's like super relatable um like if you provide an opt-out for certain content you're already kind of suggesting that like you don't consider that essential to your experience like you can't really provide like an opt-out to things that are like pretty fundamental to the story that you're trying to tell and even in cases where you do want to provide an opt-out, like there are certain, like you can't easily 
tear out certain components of a game narrative and kind of have it like be coherent anymore or even functional like it's not necessarily something that's always possible to do yeah it always it also like it was a striking thing to me that like people were saying that like kind of uncritically without like thinking about the like i mean aside from just the artistic you know merits of that but also just like the work that goes into something like that um is just like astronomical i feel like compared to like just especially for visual novels because they all have a bunch of paths like that would be a wild thing to have to do i think the other interesting aspect of this is that the again the eric situation is difficult because the text does not function without him as someone who Mm -hmm. um wrote that like like wrote a piece about the nick games narrative and who also wrote about the discourse around it it literally doesn't work. And I think that I said this on Twitter um, while talking with uh, my colleague. Um, I think that part of the interesting thing here is that games as a medium and like as a as a like object in the world um, have some unique characteristics um, as far as art goes for post-release modification. Um, so books get changed after release all the time. Different editions will change edits. Different editions can even, you know, remove content. This isn't new to art as a whole. The difference is that games as a artistic medium that is deeply rooted in the world of online means that patches do exist and do happen. And I think that leads to a leads to people making some very real assumptions around what is viable. Uh, in terms of changing art post-release, um, because we see it happen all the time, and it puts games in a very messy position. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess I hadn't even really thought about like the wibbliness of being able to do like post-release patches, especially because that's gotten so common in the past few years, like or not even a few years, but like what, like ten-ish years. Um, it's just. Yeah, it's another thing to consider that I hadn't even thought about, really. And that capacity combines with um, the often player-centric model of of conversation around games. Uh, even if not, even if design is not wholly player-centric, there is at least a conversation that the player is center to the text of a game, right? And so, basically, if the text is about you and is about fulfilling your desire and facilitating your interaction with it, if you combine that with, you know, it creates a sense of ownership over the text, um, regardless of whether or not that is designed. And just by the structure of the medium, and then couple that with the patching thing, and you have an audience that desires and is taught to feel a sense of ownership over texts, and then the ability or the believed ability to change those texts to fit audience desires post-release, and what is initially focused on gameplay eventually extends to narrative. And then you have the Boyfriend Dungeon situation, which is also complicated by a bunch of different things around culture, um, some of which I wrote about in a piece about uh, Tumblr uh, and the game's uh, discourse in relationship to the specific discourse of Tumblr in the post-NIP ban era. Oh, Tumblr and post-it ban is a whole thing into itself. Um, I I guess the other thing too that kind of came up in this whole conversation was like the blowback against Kit Fox and the fact that like queer creators on small teams kind of always seem to be the ones who get hit like really hard 
by this, whereas like other larger projects do not have that happen. Um, and the prime example being, of course, that 12 Minutes came out pretty soon after Boyfriend Dungeon and has a lot of uh, pretty fucked up stuff in it that is like not warned about in any way. And like, uh, well, I'm defosed in it, so it's fine. Um, so I guess, like, where are you all at with those, I guess, with that situation and, like, yeah, like, how do you feel about, like, who gets that blowback and all of that? I often feel like it's a matter of what feels accessible to, you know, for someone to reach out and have a conversation with someone. Like, if you're less of kind of a public-facing designer or if you're part of a company or a corporation you don't really have to have that direct dialogue with the audience and it makes you less present um whereas if you're a smaller studio like hitbox where you know it's like i think they're probably around a dozen people um part of your marketing and like a lot of your community and a lot of your sales has to be that kind of direct engagement with fans you have to kind of make yourself present in a way that other companies don't. Um, so that kind of access to can kind of be a double-edged sword and that, you know, you kind of have to put yourself out there to see it as a small developer, um, especially like a small developer with like, you know, a lot of queer developers on staff who makes games for queer communities um, involving, you know, queer themes. And so when you kind of have like an audience reaction that's upset, often that can kind of, I don't know if entitlement is exactly the right word, but it is kind of like an entitlement that, you know, they feel upset about a particular thing that transpired, like, you know, with what you released. And they have they have a very direct, real way of kind of expressing that in a way that they wouldn't be able to with a company. Um, and that can kind of like the boundaries around that can get really murky and just generally upsetting. I also think that part of this is that 12 Minutes had a pretty unreal PR rollout. Um, that game had, that, if I remember correct, actually, that game did not have um, Willem Dafoe, Daisy Ridley, um, and is it James McAvoy? Um, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, initially, that was after the game's yeah, initial... Yes. Um, so that game has a kind of unreal PR rollout, um, which set some particular expectations around aesthetics and prestige art. Um, that I find really interesting. So there is the argument that Boyfriend Dungeon's quote-unquote queer aesthetic, or, you know, what some people would call a wholesome aesthetic, which is neither here nor which is a whole other conversation. But there's an argument that that influences the assumptions that people approach the text with. Um, and I think that's really fair here. Actually, in my interview with um, Tanya, uh, she talks about how the function of marketing isn't actually to sell a game really the function of marketing is to set expectations correctly and then you sell those expectations um which i think is an interesting point from her that kind of gestures at what happened with the 12 minute situation where you have this game uh that has the air of prestige art around it um after that review i got a lot of shit um for apparently not liking art with complex themes in it someone was like oh i guess you've never seen an a24 movie which is like mm. yes i have um if if for people who actually know me um i'm a big fucking shitty art film nerd um and the assertion that i had not seen a24 movies was really funny to me and the idea that like i hate difficult material and art 
because what was happening there is that the aesthetics of prestige were being um, treated as synonymous with the particular content that 12 minutes was displaying and also displaying really fucking badly. Um, it's not the issue with 12 minutes is not that it depicts difficult content by any means. It's that it's fucking bad at it. <laughs> it's a shitty video game that's poorly written. Um, and like poorly constructed as a text. It's just a mess. And that's the issue with it. And I think that the part of the reason that we don't see the same conversation around content warnings around the game is that the aesthetics of prestige art, uh, people treat that as itself a kind of marker of what a text is going to include in some really weird ways that ends up giving a pass to a lot of bullshit. Um, both in terms of content and also in terms of like quality. I think that's absolutely spot on. And also earlier you were talking about kind of player centric design. And I think that's really interesting in the context of comparing these two, because something I've noticed over and over again is kind of, you know, player centric design has kind of become the default mode of design in the past decade or so is that it often gets misinterpreted. Um, kind of earlier in the decade, like if you read like the foundational text of um, player-centric design, the argument it was making is that you evaluate the impact of a game based off what emotions the design um, inspires in a player. But player-centric design is completely agnostic, or at least originally, about what emotion you're actually inspiring in the player. It could be a negative emotion. It could be a positive one. The only argument it makes is that you actually kind of evaluate what emotion is happening in the player, and you kind of design around that. Um, but kind of how that's gotten twisted and misinterpreted over the past 10 years is if a game... So with kind of more AAA commercial development, um, the way player-centric design gets misinterpreted is that it presents it as a kind of frictionless exercise. Like, if our game inspires any frustration or any kind of negative emotion in the player other than, you know, like, cathartic sadness or temporary, like, challenge that eventually leads to success and a feeling of accomplishment, like, that's seen as a flaw to kind of avoid. Um, and where that gets interesting with these two examples is... You were talking about this earlier, Rin, that um, Boyfriend Dungeon does a really good job of making the player feel like a very relatable and common emotion, which is having someone make you feel uncomfortable and kind of crossing a boundary, like through text messages or when you're like new to a town in a way that I think is a fairly common experience. Whereas with 12 Minutes, obviously the premise and the plot of that game is fairly outlandish. Like, you know, there are certainly people who have experienced you know events similar to what happens in that game but it's not it's not as common in the same way that you would like experience boyfriend dungeon and so with boyfriend dungeon that's like a, a kind of friction like an intentional design friction that's like reaches a lot more players just because of how common it is mm. yeah and i think that the uh drawing attention to the different kinds of emotions the game makes you feel uh, and is designed to make you feel is an interesting point here because I think that a lot of this conversation also comes around to or has come around to talking about consent in art um, and the 
thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently is the ways in which trauma and bad experience or bad feeling have become synonymous, but also the ways in which trauma and a violation of consent have become synonymous. So there becomes this, I think, impression around these games that by lacking content warning, right, the text is somehow violating one's consent, which I think misunderstands the function of consent in social situations. And like there are definitely times where texts or situations involving texts can violate your consent. This is why I think content warnings are really useful in academic settings. I have had professors show films that have content that students do not want to engage with, but because of the social contract or social system of the classroom, those students do not feel like they can walk away when they are uncomfortable. That is a situation where, because of a professor not giving a content warning, consent was violated. As opposed to something like Boyfriend Dungeon, which is a game that makes you feel bad things sometimes. And those bad things are relatable, but it feels your ability to remove oneself from the text and to remove oneself from those bad feelings changes it away from an issue of consent and more of an issue of, okay, am I responding to the trauma that I experienced or am I responding to something that the text is doing to me that is bad? Yeah, I think that's a good point, especially like, yeah, I feel like a lot of people when we were having or well, like when the conversation was happening at large, we're kind of getting upset that people were saying, you know, like a a piece of media in that way, like can't violate your consent because you can walk away from it. And I feel like a lot of people were tying it back into that whole like, well, this isn't what we were marketed. This isn't the cute dating sim we were sold. And uh, I struggle with that, I think, because First and foremost, like I did, well, I think like the quote from that you had from Tanya um, Ren is interesting about, you know, like selling what's gonna, like, what an expectation. But we've had like multiple cases recently of like games marketing, like, not being accurate to like what the experience is going to be. Like, what happened with like The Last of Us 2? Um, and even like the thing that I was kind of talking about was bug snacks, where like the the marketing for that was Caro Caro Bonito doing stuff while like a little googly eyed bug vibed in the background. When like the ending of that game is some deeply Cronenberg like terrible shit, and all of the characters in that game are awful people. <laughs> um. And it just, I don't know, it feels like there's a weird lapse in, like, what people expect from marketing or, like, who gets to have, like, quote-unquote deceptive marketing. Or even just, like, I don't, I also just don't agree that it's, like, deceptive to have a cute dating sim that also has, like, a plotline about stalking as the main plotline. I think, like, the two things can exist at the same time. Yeah, there was one, there were a lot of claims going around that, the kickstarter itself was misleading which from a development perspective gets really tricky because i played um a vertical slice of boyfriend dungeon that was being shown off at conventions around the time that the kickstarter happened to kind of promote the kickstarter um and at the time it was just straight up like a vertical slice and you know when it comes to game narrative um you have a premise and you start with a premise but the act of building that out to 
you know, a full-fledged, like, you know, eight to ten hour or even two hour, however long the game narrative is. The act of building that out to, like, a full narrative experience is, like, an iterative process that takes place over the full course of development. So it's extremely likely that whatever conception they had for the story of Boyfriend Dungeon was when the Kickstarter happened was significantly different than how it like developed over the course of um, that kind of process, that artistic process. So there wouldn't have even really been, even if they had gone in with like a very clear vision of what their later game would be like, like they wouldn't have been able to communicate that necessarily to a Kickstarter audience. And the question of, is this kind of like, does does the actual game that came out kind of line up with what the Kickstarter was promising? Like, I don't in any way kind of see that it wasn't because essentially it just has a storyline that is about dating, which is exactly what it promised. Yeah, I think the other thing that I touched on in something I wrote a little bit ago was the fact that a lot of the people talking about expectations and talking about how the game was like marketed wrong or something Tanya touched on this, the three years between the game's initial Kickstarter and its release, it kind of took on an image in people's heads. And I cannot help but think that that image is deeply influenced by the ways in which people have started talking about media um, in the last few years, uh, specifically around a certain way of understanding the or a certain way of reading texts that prioritizes depiction over anything else. Um, this way of reading texts like, is like, oh, cool, look, X show depicted X group of people, and that depiction is itself something to be read, right? That is something we can garner meaning from, is that the depiction happened at all, uh, as opposed to actually reading what is happening, that it happened is considered the thing. So in a case like, okay, this game's aesthetic is as such. So Boyfriend Dungeon has a cute aesthetic, right? And therefore that aesthetic can be read as a thing with certain implications um, and certain definite implications that cannot be divorced from the actual content therein. Um, and it leads to people making a lot of weird assumptions around what things include. I would argue that this is an offshoot of like, tagging systems uh, and the simpli simplification of art and relationship down to tags um, that then can be basically stapled on or removed from something. So if Boyfriend Dungeon's aesthetic is cute, staple on the cute tag, and therefore you have a ton of different assumptions coming from that and a ton of different like social mores around that particular aesthetic that like Kid Fox didn't sign up for. Yeah, it's interesting too thinking about that in the con in like conversation with a game like Doki Doki Literature Club because that's another game, right? That's not it's not cute in the way that I think you're talking about necessarily of like the capital C like western wholesome games quote unquote cute, but it is, you know, like cute anime girls, right? And then everything's, you know, goes to shit um but that game originally did not have a good content warning i don't even know if it had a content warning originally if it did it was very very vague um but with the new release of doki doki plus that they like just did this year they completely redid the content warning 
um, which is great. But it's just like, again, a weird thing to see like a game like that be praised for being like smart because it tricked the player and then did something meta to be creepy. But like just having more depth to a story than what you originally expected is somehow like an attack or like some kind of like thing that a text is doing to you. It's just a really weird thing to me. And I don't know if it's just like because Doki Doki's a little bit older, but it's not that old. I mean, I think I think Doki Doki is as an example is something that is older enough that the complete shift that has happened in discourse around art was in the process of taking place, but was still on its way. Um, if I was if I was more of an old old woman with a cane, um, I would shake my I would shake my cane at um, a certain kind of video essay um, that centers uh, readings around. Um, depiction and representation that i feel weird about but doki doki literature i think comes out in a very real transitionary period um at least to me yeah i feel like doki doki came out like right when i was starting to get back into games and like writing about games and stuff so i feel like i think of it as maybe being newer than it actually is but it's just, yeah, it just continues to be very strange to me that, like, games that do any sort of meta thing or any sort of, oh, there's a trick involved, like, that makes it okay, as opposed to just being like, no, there's just, like, more to this narrative than you originally thought. Well, I think that's part of what happens with something like 12 Minutes. That game is predicated on the fact that it has twists, and twists come with a sense of prestige. Boyfriend Dungeon doesn't have a twist. Not really. The game kind of just lays out who Eric is from the onset. There is no grand reveal, um, which is different from something like 12 Minutes, which has upsetting content, but it's actually like really weird gross shit does not come until a big reveal or twist. And I think, again, this is part of like the prestige of quote unquote high art being applied to something, right? Because Doki Doki Literature Club is doing a twist tm it is getting the prestige of high art uh, applied to it versus something like boyfriend dungeon which from its onset is upfront about the dude that eric is an interesting aspect of the game is that your character um is pretty lightly defined but one thing that is always true about them is that they think eric is a fucking creep that is just true about the character all of your text messages are evasive at one point you ask him to stop and to leave you alone. That's just part of the text. And I think that without the protection of the guise of, you know, legitimacy that comes from a twist, Boyfriend Dungeon is left kind of vulnerable to certain kinds of people getting mad that a game with, like, a major twist wouldn't. It's such a funny thing. It's like such a weird, I don't know that it's a double standard, but it's just a weird thing to me because like so much of the stuff that gets that prestige pass, like just does fucked up stuff that's not very good. It's like, not good at it. It's shitty at it. And like, that's the thing is that like, oh, that's a problem with 12 minutes is that like a lot of the shit that does, tries to prestige shit doesn't do it well. This is David Cage's fault. 
It is David Cage's fault. It absolutely is. I fucking hate that fucker. I do um, too. He's, he's official uppercut stance. Fuck David Cage. Fuck David Cage. On on the on the topic of blaming things, can I just like note one other thing about the boyfriend discourse that I find interesting? Yes, of course. So I think that there is an almost carceral lens that you can apply here. Why are people mad about Boyfriend Dungeon? People are mad about Boyfriend Dungeon because they can... It's about naming the harm and the idea that somehow naming it or like finding a blame for the bad feeling you have can make it go away. The game made me have a bad feeling. I have to find someone to blame for the bad feeling that this game made me feel as opposed to how can I process this bad feeling? This is something that I think about uh, around trauma a lot. For myself in particular, I have some trauma that I don't remember. And therefore, assigning fault or assigning responsibility doesn't work. And so you're left with this question of how do you process something you cannot name? And Boyfriend Dungeon is eminently nameable. It is an easy game to name the thing. Oh, a bad thing happened. I can name it and blame the lack of content warnings on the thing that made me feel bad. As opposed to instead trying to work through or process, you know, a particular bad feeling that the text made you have, or even using the text as a way to process a traumatic event that happened to you previously. Not every text is able to help you process trauma, but I think that treating texts that include content that makes you feel bad as if they've done something wrong comes from a deeply carceral mindset around responsibility for harm and centers like blame as opposed to healing first. And I think that's a weird thing that's happening in this conversation. Yeah, it definitely, I feel like, I can't remember where I read this, but it was the idea of like re- like reactive like readings of things. And like that just kind of seems to be the the common way most people like who are online or like in fandom spaces or whatever are reading things where they're just like looking for the thing. Um, kind of in the same way that you were talking about representation, Ren, of just like looking for the thing and then being like, ah, I have found the thing. It is either good or bad. Um, and just kind of like going from there. Um which is, uh, I feel like, not a very productive way to read a text. Um, Kevin, in terms of, like, all of this stuff, I guess, from a from a dev perspective, what is it, what is it, like, feeling like to, you know, be working on stuff with these kinds of readings and attitudes and stuff being very prevalent? Um, well, it's, it can be alarming, but I think, I think it's more alarming if you, like, it would have been more alarming to me much earlier in my career than it is now. Like, at this point, I'm just kind of desensitized to, like, a lot of audience reactions to various things. Um, like, I have a game coming out, Southern Monsters, that, you know, I have fairly extensive content warning for, but it's essentially a game based off like domestic abuse and the domestic abuse that I experienced growing up. Um, so it's 
Like there are significant elements of it that are supposed to be intentionally upsetting and are supposed to kind of um, elaborate upon those experiences using games as a medium. Um, so, you know, kind of when I read these discussions, there's definitely like a kind of a selfish kind of response to it where I'm like, well, these types of attitudes are definitely going to present like, you know, an issue when I release this game going forward. Um, but that would have freaked me out like a lot more like probably seven or eight years ago when I was first releasing things. Um, after a certain point, you kind of detach yourself from reactions you kind of just let the criticism play out and i say that like ideally there are quite a lot of developers in the game industry who do not do a very good job of that and are honestly pretty sensitive and to criticism and it's not particularly they don't usually respond well to criticism honestly which is unfortunate because criticism is like an excellent thing that should be supported but you know yeah um I guess the other thing that I kind of want to, like, I guess the thing that I've been thinking about while prepping for this and also prepping for something else um, is, like, kind of touching back on what Ren was talking about with um, where twists and doing, like, meta discussions with the audience and, like, playing with the fourth wall things are all things that t kind of get to be part of that prestige category um and just going back to the stuff that gets excused by it like i'm playing danganronpa um v3 right now and i don't have either of you played played those games played that game oh i got that ideal danganronpa experience which is i read the original let's plays on something nice. awful before you oh could even play them guys <laughs> I had the very interesting experience of being around the Something Awful community at the time as a child, but being unable to actually access the forums because I wasn't, like, a member. And so I heard everyone talking about the original um, uh, translation of Danganronpa at the time and having to just be like, okay, cool. Someday, maybe. I really shouldn't be allowed to feel this old. I'm only 32. <laughs> <laughs> okay it's just because Ren is my superpower yeah uh yeah I, I caused my co-workers to have a conniption earlier i feel <laughs> i feel very guilty for the way that i am it's fine <laughs> it's excellent um well so we don't have to get into my day in rapid history but suffice it to say the quote-unquote third game in that series is like very interested in having twists on twists on twists and then tying that into the audience expectation of, like, what entertaining television looks like. And I just feel like there's become a real cynicalness in terms of that prestige media as to, like, what you have to do for it to be prestige. And, like, you have to have it be simultaneously weirdly schlocky but also like very dark and gross and i just i don't get it i don't know if i have a point i just don't get it well i think that the interesting thing is that a lot of texts and a lot of like fine writing will use playing with form and playing with expectations as an ends as opposed to a means for making people feel things mm -hmm. which is i think um 
a really backwards way to approach art. This is kind of how I felt about 12 Minutes. That game is trying to do things with form and structure and, you know, narrative expectations. But what the fuck is it in pursuit of? Like, you, yeah. you never feel anything. 12 Minutes never made me actually feel anything other than, ugh. Yeah, from a design perspective, like, the common critique there would be that everything, like, a game that, like, 12 Minutes is doing is unearned. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it has all these incredibly heavy subjects and all this heavy imagery, but it doesn't really explore that with sufficient depth to really earn kind of engaging with any of that as material or as a subject. Um, There's, yeah, I I played that fairly recently, and I I agree with all of your critiques of it. It's just a huge mess. And, like, the David Cage reference is absolutely spot on. It's, like, the aesthetic of having that type of prestige without really actually engaging with it in a meaningful way or kind of having anything meaningful to say about it. Which is, again, how we get to, like, you know, the difference between some A24 films and, and 12 Minutes. It's not, it's not the content. It is the efficacy of its, of its deployment, right? Like, the movie The Lighthouse has some really tremendously fucked up shit in it. But also that movie made me feel a lot of different things and did so well and with intention. Um, you know, Gita Jackson actually, um, around expectations, uh, had a really good thread recently on Twitter um, about one time she had a partner uh, who she was like, oh, I want to watch something fun. I want to watch a comedy. And so she suggested watching Fargo. Uh, and her partner at the time went, well, no, that movie has a murder in it, so it's not a comedy. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen the film Fargo, but that movie is a comedy. And, like, Knives Out has, uh, is about a murder, is about navigating some really complex themes and power dynamics, and it's got a man who sounds like Foghorn Leghorn in it. And, and so you have this assumption that that both depiction and deployment of a device is in and of itself the end, as opposed to, again, the actual use of that content. It is not a murder. The murder is not the murder. The murder is how it's used. And 12 Minutes never uses its shit to do anything interesting. Not, not one second does it do anything interesting with the tools it's deploying. And it's like, it's a mess. And Boyfriend Dungeon does. It actually, to some degree, does use the tools it's employing. That game makes you feel stuff. In fact, it's genuine in earnestness to the point of being awkward at times. That game is occasionally awkward. Characters will say some shit where I'm like, no human being would ever say that. And then I remember people I've dated and I go, hell yeah, they fucking would. It's genuine and earnest like dating should be. And it all feels very strange to put those two texts in conversation with one another, where one is not deploying a lot of, like, narrative tools in a way, but making you feel, and the other is trying to deploy every goddamn narrative tool it can towards nothing. Absolutely. And Boyfriend Dungeon in particular, like, it not only kind of surfaces that through, you know, its story, like, its dialogue, characters and everything but also through its mechanics like Mm -hmm. when you alluded earlier to eric kind of owning a store and how you 
would intentionally avoid that store because he was there. That's like a mechanical consequence. It's like a design consequence. Um, and I remember reading, you know, when this, when all the discourse was happening, how like, you know, people were criticizing that as a design flaw that because there was the store that they wanted to access for, you know, so that they could buy stuff that would be useful to them in the game. And this character was there. They don't want to go there anymore. So therefore that must be like an unintentional design flaw on the part of the developers that they didn't anticipate that players would feel uncomfortable going there. Whereas what it's doing is like, it's using mechanics to spread, like make this like very common and relatable like situation of, you know, there's a person who makes you uncomfortable and you have to avoid them and that can have consequences for you that are really unfair. Like that's a kind of mechanical expression that I think um, kind of gets overlooked a lot because there's not a lot of games literacy for mechanics inspiring negative mm -hmm. emotions in general. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also just incredibly smart um, in a way that pretty much God, I usually try not to like talk shit about other developers on in like public or like on podcasts, but with twelve minutes, I don't really feel that bad about it, honestly, just because it's it's a true critique. Yeah, and also the other like the other thing that really gets me about that critique of boyfriend dungeon is that they're holding back. That store is not plot is not gameplay essential. Like the the, the incredible thing that they that I think they did there was that by making the store extant but not necessary they did they did soften the blow for players who don't feel comfortable dealing with it like the that store sells resources that you can get in any early game dungeon basically instantly it is not hard to get those resources they are used for the basically entirely optional crafting mechanic in the game it is exactly. a place you don't have to touch and that feels like holding a punch in a way that is trying to be kind to how players are going to respond to this shitty dude and seeing them get hell for it is is deeply frustrating yeah like there's like so much thought put into like that inspiring a particular emotion and not only like inspiring an emotion but like a tonally appropriate kind of emotion like there are ways that like they could have presented eric as a character like mechanically and also in his story that would have you know been this might not be this isn't exactly the right phrase but it kind of gets at what i'm getting at like there there could have been more melodramatic ways of going for eric's story like they could have like you know escalated things significantly but like they're very thoughtful about each individual step of his mm -hmm. character arc and also how it's placed in the game um and exactly the way that you're identifying with like the store you know, having useful things, but not also not like mandatory things. Like that's extremely thoughtful design in a way that, you know, twelve minutes again. Another useful contrast here. Like you know, the mechanics and the tool sets that it's playing with are not thoughtful. They're very haphazardly employed. So for boyfriend dungeon to get criticized for you know what players perceived as a design flaw when it was like extremely intentional is extremely frustrating to see. Didn't. Didn't Tanya Shore in an interview say that Eric's storyline was originally a lot more extreme and that they like dialed it down? That wouldn't surprise me if that's I, I didn't see that particular quote, but like that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I feel like I distinctly remember seeing a quote about her saying that like 
the storyline originally had him like breaking into your apartment and stuff and they decided like ooh we got to pump the brakes on that a little bit mm-hmm. and and i honestly not to i mean to get into the weeds of boyfriend for a sec they took the worst parts of eric and made a character that can do those things and like and and who does the the really nasty shit they have a character mm-hmm. who does that and so the game is able to still engage with those themes without again putting players in a deeply in in a without putting players in a compromised position there is active intent to avoid creating that relationship to the text um which is again why i why i like the game a lot and and believe it is very well written um even in the moments where its earnestness can feel a bit much it does it so well that i really care right at the end of not to spoil it at the end of eric's story quick spoilers skip ahead 30 seconds um at the end of eric's story he goes i'm a fucked up dude and i need to go to therapy (laughs) and like yeah that's earnest it's on the nose but also that earnestness feels earned by the text and feels in line with everything to this point as a game that is invested in it is wholesome not in aesthetic but wholesome in its belief that people can connect with one another and can develop emotionally over time that is its wholesome aspect not its actual aesthetics and that's why i really like the game and think it's well designed i also for the record i feel like not that either of you are saying this but just because i've seen it like a lot of people associate boyfriend dungeon like with wholesome games like the the group like the the twitter account um but they never did anything with them (laughs) Like, Victoria Tran, who was the uh, community manager or something at Kit Fox, like, did stuff with Wholesome, but, like, Boyfriend Dungeon was never actually, like, in a Wholesome Direct or anything like that. Um, So people really do be making some assumptions based just, like, on how a game looks. And again, I think that ties back to what I was mentioning earlier with aesthetics and, you know, simplification due to the ways that we have started talking about media and talking about art recently. It comes from a way of thinking about genre, where genre is a thing a text has, right? You imbue a text with genre, and therefore that is fundamentally what it is. Boyfriend Dungeon is the wholesome genre, as opposed to in a moment, Boyfriend Dungeon performs wholesomeness. Genre is a thing, in its best ways, genre is a thing that you do. Like, genre and gender, I think, function in really similar ways. in social systems gender is kind of just human genre um and in that way i think that looking at something like boyfriend dungeon which gets labeled with the expectations of a genre that it is only occasionally performing uh is is very interesting to me touching on that there's an angle to all this i haven't seen anyone discuss yet that i kind of noticed and i kind of want to hear y'all's thoughts about it um I noticed that a lot of the discourse around this, like the way that I saw a lot of it framed was it came from a lot of it, not all of it, uh, came from people who were streaming the game. Like I saw a lot of critiques of how um, a lot of frustration towards the game because they would stream it and like their audience or their chat would have a particular reaction to it. And then that would be like, you know, when the Twitter threads started and things along those lines. and there was even like a particularly like there was one thread I read that got like a, quite a bit of traction before like it turned into a whole discourse thing it, where 
someone said they weren't going to stream the game anymore, but instead they were going to stream Mass Effect, which is a game that is uh, much less thoughtful around, you know, consent and other things that Boyfriend Dungeon um, explores with a lot more nuance. And it also has no content warnings. And, you know, it's also like a more mainstream game that's kind of feels like it should be a safer target for those critiques, but, you know, it kind of just gets overlooked entirely. Um, do you all have any thoughts about, like, how streaming and, like, kind of impacts all of this? So I hadn't thought about it until you brought it up, but um, in response to my 12 minutes piece, um, I, because my brain is sick, uh, I go through comments and I go through quote retweets just to kind of see how people are feeling about a piece and what I can work on in future work. and. One of the things that I saw pretty frequently around 12 minutes was people tweeting at streamers being like, do y'all know that was in there? Did y'all, hey, did y'all know about this? You might want to know about this. Which is really interesting to see that so many people around 12 minutes experienced the game first through streaming and then read the piece that I did. It was a primary way of people connecting with the text, um, which is in and of itself Interesting. I think the point that you brought up um, a second ago around um, Mass Effect, I think that Mass Effect is a known quantity, and that known quantityness makes people think that it's therefore safe. If it's known, it is safe. You can, everyone knows that Mass Effect has the content that it has in it. Um, and also that, like, Mass Effect does things with consent and does things with themes, but does it through some metaphorical distance. Boyfriend Dungeon with Eric throws away metaphorical distance. Eric is not, you know, a metaphor for stalking. He is a stalker. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's kind of where we're coming up against depiction versus how you read the text, right? People are instead focusing on whether or not it depicts a literal stalker as opposed to how the text actually deploys and engages with consent and, like, responsibility. Yeah, those are extremely good points. Because, um, yeah, something I kind of noticed when I was, like, I, I find it really interesting and kind of fascinating is, like, some of the upset was kind of what the content and Boyfriend Dungeon kind of did for, like, the streaming environment and kind of, like, the vibe of the stream, like, in terms of, like, people in chat getting upset and, you know, uh, streamers not feeling particularly prepared for, like, the content that was in the game. Um, and what you mentioned about Mass Effect kind of being a known quantity kind of rings true to me because, you know, when you stream something like Mass Effect, that's a fairly old game that's very well known. Most likely a lot of people, you know, tuning in for that stream, their contributions to a chat like that um, are probably more along the lines of, oh, I played all of this before. Like, this is what I did on this choice. This is what I did on this branch. Like, there's a lot more familiarity there that, um, kind of like you were saying, like, it makes it much safer, which is compared to something that you're streaming for the first time and no one is familiar with. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I know um, our, like, social media assistant, Lotus, um, is a streamer, and I know that a lot of her issue kind of came down to, like, criticizing the actual content warning, um, which I think is 
where the conversation swings back into it being fair and like kind of what we were talking about earlier of like yeah like generally i feel like like i i know kevin you said you're glad that the content warning was updated like i'm glad that it got updated and mostly because like i to me what it said was enough as far as the like this story is going to involve stalking like i was like okay like it's gonna be there um but i know for her she was saying that like not having registered like how much of a thing it was gonna be and then being on stream and realizing it was like a really uncomfortable experience and like not something that she wanted to do um so i guess it's it is that thing of like being in front of an audience so then like you have to worry about your reaction and their reaction at the same time um and i get why that could be like a lot to juggle and process at one time i think that this ties back into what i was talking about classrooms earlier uh in terms of like showing a text in a classroom setting there are specific situations in which your ability to immediately remove oneself from a text that is causing you problems or causing you to have a bad feeling that you are not prepared for uh there are social contexts in which you lose that ability and in those places, I think content warnings are particularly useful. So, like, I am someone who plays games pretty much entirely on their own. Um, I don't stream very often, even though I enjoy doing it. Um, and who, like, definitely has trauma, but for whom content warnings aren't useful. But if I was going into a situation where there was a social power dynamic that expected me to continue doing the text no matter what, I would want to know what I'm getting into. And that's an that is again talk coming back to this idea of of safety and familiarity, right? And I think that's part of part of what including content warnings in certain social settings is very, very useful for because it allows people to adequately prepare themselves for performing in a social context. I have had friends who felt unable to walk out of a classroom when a professor was showing something they were uncomfortable with which is, I think, very different from having something they did not want to see in a text and feeling like they could not turn it off, right? You can always walk away from the text, but a streamer cannot just get up and turn off the stream. That makes so much sense to me. Yeah, yeah, thank you for elaborating on that. Um, there's, it's really interesting to me, kind of, I mean, I kind of gave myself away earlier when I mentioned having read the thing in Ronco Let's Plays on something awful. But um, one thing I'm kind of, one reason I feel so strongly in support of content warnings is that, you know, in the 2000s and the early 2010s with gaming culture, um, the way that you kind of prepared yourself for these things, like even a visual novels, I used to play like a lot of uh, visual novels that had a lot of extreme content in them with like no content warnings um but there would always be like um like a thread on a message board or some kind of like easily searchable resource that like a community member had prepared to kind of like talk in detail about like what the game contained um that was kind of like a pre-content warning content warning um I, I forgot where I was going with that, but um, basically it's interesting to me to kind of watch these things kind of develop over time, like compared to how they used to be, I guess. Mm -hmm. I Hello. do. Ooh, go ahead, Ren. No, please tie. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that just made me think of two. I think another part of the 
like conversation that I think got kind of drowned out, but that I actually felt was pretty useful was like people saying like, hey, like we get that you have the content warning, but it kind of sucks that you don't see the content warning until you start the game. So like in theory, if you buy the game, there's no way to know until you start. And so it would have been good to have like those areas on the Steam page and like the game's website more filled out, which I think is very weird for Boyfriend Dungeon in particular, just because like there are a lot of ways to play it that don't involve buying it. Yeah, that game's on Game Pass. You know, that game's on Game Pass. Refunds exist. Like the there are problems with the Steam refund system. This is <laughs> this is where I start to get a little bit bristly. Um is when you're looking at something, the social context in which content warnings are most necessary, Boyfriend Dungeon has already told you the relevant information before you started it. Like, before you actually started playing the game. Like, if you can refund the game, it's fine. If you see the content warning, it shows you right at the onset. Is it a little bit of a logistics issue for you? Yeah, sure. And, like, even... Even Kickstarter backers, right? The exception to this is Kickstarter backers, people who backed the game and did not feel that they could actually play the end result. I, I will note on that just because I've kickstarted games before is there's no expiration date on requesting a refund through Kickstarter. Um, so also those people could have reached out to Kickbox and knowing Kickbox, I think they probably would have refunded them if they were, you know, that upset about it. So it's kind of a like you mentioned, it's a logistics issue, but there's still an avenue there, even right. through Kickstarter. And, and, and like, exactly. And that's, again, this is where I start to have frustrations around the deployment of content warnings in particular social settings. They're very useful and very good at protecting people from experiencing bad, bad feelings in times where they cannot adequately engage with them. But also, like, the problem with depicting something in a classroom setting is that a student is not in the uh, is not in the social position to be able to properly process those feelings, right? If there are certain things that I would see in a classroom that I would not be in a position to sit down, pause, process, figure out my feelings around it, and and choose to keep going or not. And when you're looking at like, that is the utility of a content warning for me is is to give you that moment to determine whether or not you want to keep walking forward. And that isn't an issue of buying the thing. That isn't an issue of that is that is just that is that is my only frustration on content. I think even content warnings on social media are useful if occasionally performative. I think content warnings on social media are useful, but can often feel like adding something for the sake of adding it, as opposed to actually engaging with the things that you're saying um, and recognizing that no one has to read my tweets. <laughs> you, you have the capacity to walk away. And this is where the stuff I was talking about earlier with bad feelings, trauma, and a violation of consent becoming synonymous with one another. There are violations of social consent that happen all the time that are not traumatic. Um, that make you feel bad. Um, I think these are all very separate concepts that have moments of very intense overlap becoming synonymous with one another in some really 
in advisable ways um, from a like being able to communicate with other people functionally standpoint. Yeah, I that played out very dramatically that particular intersection of like content warnings and consent and you know kind of opting into people's timelines on a lot of mastodon instances like about a year or two ago and it becomes this question of right how do i ethically and safely interact with other people and i think that part of the problem is again this carceral mindset of the question is how do I avoid doing harm in any instance because doing harm is bad and immediately labels me a villain who does harm to people, as opposed to the question of how do I thoughtfully engage with the things that I'm saying and give people the space to process bad things when they happen and be there to process bad things when they happen. I think it's one thing to try and avoid hurting people. Trying to avoid hurting people is good, but I think the much more important work happens afterwards trying to be there for people who have experienced trauma and helping them process it is always going to be more important to me than like playing to an assumed audience I've never actually spoken to. Yeah. And this actually touches on something that I worry about a lot. Like earlier, Ty, you asked me like how I feel about this as a developer and someone who makes games. Um, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it at the time, but I think the thing that worries me the most is like, you know, I'm someone who, is more pro content warning than probably the vast majority of people. Um, like I, in a lot of my games, I always have content warnings, and in certain games where it's mechanically possible, like in the Silence Under Your Bed, you can view the content warnings of each modular story within the story and choose to skip it entirely. I'm um, like, you can actually go, like I wouldn't recommend this, but you can start to finish, go through the entire game, and skip every story if you want to. Um, it, in that case, you wouldn't have really played the game, but, you know, whatever, that's a function. That's, like, a consequence of the that particular type of modular design um, and that type of modular content warning. But when it comes to, like, discussions of consent and, like, doing harm to someone through, like, a work of art and where your responsibility falls, like, that's where consent starts to feel really murky to me because... I can't, like, if I release a game and I put a content warning on it, like, I can't actually care for someone at that point in the way that I would care for them if I were, like, in the same room mm -hmm. with them or, like, physically present around them. Like, that's where, like, a lot of discussions around consent in particular are most useful to me. But, like, if I release something and upload it to the internet and someone downloads it and they read the content warning and then they play it, there's... When it comes to like the framework of consent, there's not a whole lot I can do after that. Like, there's nothing that I can do to kind of, you know, other than the design choices that I already made and released and they downloaded and played. That's where I start to, that's where like consent becomes less of a helpful framework for me for understanding kind of the creator and audience uh, relationship. Right. And I think that's also where the carceral aspect comes in and the aspect of, of, of blame coming into play here. Um, because I think that a lot of times the response to having that bad feeling is going, this text caused me a bad feeling. I think that most of the time the text isn't what's causing you the bad feeling, it's the trauma. And you're looking in the wrong, often blaming the wrong thing for causing you harm. Because it is the one that is closest and the thing that like 
caused you to have a bad feeling, but that's not the trauma. The text isn't the trauma. The text isn't doing the harm. It's reminding you of it. And, like, reminding someone of harm can require aftercare and, like, making sure they are okay. But I think as, you know, I say occasional poet in my bio, I'm not an active designer. Um, you can only protect those you can reach. Like, I, 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 I don't know how we can make ourselves feel responsible for protecting people our arms can't reach. And the text can reach plenty of people our arms cannot. And doing what we can to mitigate the harm of text is good. And making sure we actively discuss in our communities how do you care for someone who has been harmed is, to me, so much more important than trying to help every single, trying to individually help every single person who your text brings a bad feeling in. Um, which is, a, again, a complicating factor here, because Boyfriend Dungeon is a game about exploring how you cope with bad feelings. <laughs> how do you cope with the feeling of having a stalker? How do communities respond to this as a central theme of the game? It is trying to answer the question, right? If I can speak, at least this is my relationship to art. When I have experienced trauma and have gone to art that depicts that trauma, I have used it as a way to explore those feelings and try and find a way to stop hating everything about myself in response to it. And so when I look at a text like Boyfriend Dungeon that tries so hard to give people a way to process those feelings, it is trying to give you the tools to take care of yourself. I think that that is a very kind way of designing something. And that kindness is being overshadowed here um, in a way that I, that I feel bad about. I love the way you put all that. That's like super spot on. Because I, I think we, I have a similar relationship to art for sure. I'm, I'm sure you know most people do. Like one of the earliest and most like uh, formative films for me I saw when I when I was a teenager, and it was Mysterious Skin, which um, is a Greg Araki movie that deals with childhood sexual abuse and it was like the first time i had seen in a piece of media like something that really dealt with like the material and like trauma of that and like what it felt like like whenever the subject came up in any other media i experienced it was always very detached or distant or you know very superficial in the way that it explored it in a way that didn't feel real to me and made my experiences like more confusing to me. Um, so I th that like watching that movie when I was like 15 or so, like that made like a huge impact on me. I was like, wow, like this is like something that obviously watching it is like, extremely like upsetting. And, you know, I would say it harms me to watch it, but kind of like you were saying, like it's a way of exploring that harm. And yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And then the question becomes, you know, as creators, as, as writers and critics, as, as designers, writers and critics, the people on this podcast, what is our responsibility both to our audience and to the people around us? And I think that the actual responsibility is around setting standards um, of care for other people. I think that's the more central thing we should be doing as opposed to actually like, do you have content warnings in this text? 
I think that is an important question. I think an equally important question is how is your text modeling processing trauma? Um, or not modeling, but how is your text engaging with that trauma? How are you as a developer connecting with other developers and and being there for them? How are you affecting your community? And that's never the question being asked in these conversations. The conversation never, how is Boyfriend Dungeon interacting with a community and helping define the standards around human interaction and around connection in this community? That is a game that has very real feelings about how you're supposed to interact with other people. And those feelings are being overshadowed here. Um, which is frustrating. I think it's easy to see that as a failure of critical or close reading. But I think it is also a failure of thinking about how communities are formed and how standards in those communities are set, which I think is a very real question we have here. Because I think art does a lot to set standards for communities. Um, and I think examples of art that, well, containing difficult or painful material but still helping one process trauma i mean helping someone process trauma is always going to be more helpful for a community than just saying that the trauma is bad yeah i think there's also something to be said for like the fact that you know a a, a part of healing processes can be you know painful and like you kind of have to be willing to to deal with that pain it's like we have a piece on uppercut that's about paratopic or not paratopic pathologic too and the um you know the idea of um the main character from pathologic being a doctor and like having to hurt people to heal them and like you know, sometimes you have to break a bone to reset it, that kind of thing. And, like, a lot of media does provide, I feel like, the knife, right, to cut open, like, the part that's infected, but maybe not necessarily, like, like what we've been talking about of the aftercare tools mm. for it. And so I think, I guess that's kind of too part of where it's a literacy... I don't like saying like a media literacy failure because I feel like that sounds like assholey, but just like yeah, it does feel like a lapse of like being able to see like where where works are going to provide you the opportunity to work through those things and like where they're going to even go beyond that and then like being angry at like how that is communicated rather than like how it's actually done. This is why I love Disco Elysium as a game about trauma. I just wrote a big 4,000-word piece about Disco Elysium's relationship to trauma, both in terms of its like design, but also its explicit narrative. And one of the things I mentioned in that piece is the only way to remove a broadhead arrow embedded in a human body is to push it through. If you pull out a broadhead arrow, it will do incredible damage to the surrounding tissue way more than if you push it through. And I think that... The worst ways that we try and process trauma is when we try and pull things out of us. Just directly. Rip it out. And it does a lot of harm. Um, so does leaving the arrow in. Leaving it in there to fester and seep metal into your blood is a bad idea. And so, what do you do? 
a trauma. And I think sometimes you push it through. And the best art not only gives you the place to push it through, but then hands you a salve at the end and is like, okay, cool. The arrow is out of you. Let's get to work healing the body. That's why I love Disco Elysium. Disco Elysium ends with a wrap-up of everything you just experienced in the game. Some people hate that. Some people hate the fact that Disco Elysium ends with basically a summary, where you look at a group of people and you tell them, this is what I did. But Just because you brought up Artemy, Ty, uh, Artemy would remove the arrow and also all of your organs. <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't know. I think about trauma a lot and how techs engage with trauma a lot. and kind of the responsibility or the role of art in helping to process that. And I don't know, art's important to me. And so is making it in all of its various forms. And the last thing I want to do is have artists be afraid of touching the shaft of the arrow for any, in, in, in any way, right? Pushing it through, pulling it out, I want artists to be able to push. You're saying a lot of really eloquent things here, but I'm like stuck on the fact, like the way you described the Disco Elysium ending. Like I'm, I was so familiar with that as like an RPG convention, like, you know, reaching the end and kind of getting the summary. But I kind of, I think I've never thought about emotionally what it's doing, like as kind of a structure. Oh, yeah, that's, that's not to yell about Disco Elysium just one second. That's Harry's trauma. Oh, do. That's Harry's trauma narrative. That's him giving testimony. That is him pouring out six years worth of trauma onto the ground in front of his colleagues. That's kind of what games are sometimes, is trauma narratives, is giving testimony. Um, and giving testimony is such an important part of processing trauma on an individual level, but also on a community level. I think that's why conversations like this are useful. To talk about what happened around Boyfriend Dungeon is to try and start processing as a community the thing that happened. Um, and community here both refers to as, you know, people who talk about video games, but also as like the broader community TM that also includes all of the people listening to the show. You know, honestly, I don't think I don't think that we have a better place to end that on. That's Yeah, that's kind of a mic drop moment. <laughs> Um, Ren, I know you just mentioned the website that you work for, but where where can people find you on the old on the old internet and around? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Ren or Raven. Um, and you cannot find me in Ohio as of the end of the week, hopefully. Fair. Um, you can also read Ren's stuff over on thekotaku.com. Um and Kevin, how about you? I'm available at bravemule.com. Uh, well, I guess I do have a website, bravemule.com, but uh, you can also find me at Twitter at bravemule, where I tweet about Goku and Toku and nothing else, except when I have the horrible idea of tweeting about other things. <laughs> I feel like you need like a live, laugh, love, but it's just Goku, Toku, and then like something else. Something else. Yeah. Yeah. I need to get that on like a throw pillow. Be good. Um, but yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Owothkeeper, and that's spelled just like it sounds. Um, Palin' Around is a project of Uppercut, which you can find on all social media at UppercutCrit and UppercutCrit.com. 
If you'd like to hang out with the Uppercut crew, feel free to join our Discord. As always, the link is in the episode description. Um, if you like the show, be sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can't get enough, you can head on over to patreon.com slash uppercutcrit and toss a couple of bucks our way to get it early or even get your name read at the end of the show, just like these folks. Of course, huge thanks as always to our $7 and up patrons, uh, Santi Liguiza, Justin Drew, 3rd Avenue Anti-Capitalist, Katie Mare, Brian Hutchings, Cody Peters, Darren, Jefferson Toll, Hannah Kim, Matt Burr, Jordan Ramey, Dale, Adam Manahan, uh, Wheels, Jesse Vitelli, GameCrash.co.uk, Adept7777, Optional Objectives, Kenneth Shepard, Lucas Lyon, Eli Berg-Moss, Jason Coles, Adrian A. Rock-Williams, Matthew Flowers, Andrew Sherman, Colton Crow, Jesse Peterson, Jared Shu, DJ Kento, Cam Koenig, Quentin Hoffman, and Mikey Phillips. Uh, thank you so much for your generosity, and thank you, listener, for palling around with us. Bye. Goodbye forever. That's it. Ren's never coming back. <laughs> Leaving Ohio and the internet. <laughs>